Hi, Will Gethin here, welcoming you to Follow Your Blisters, the Hero's Journey podcast. In this first episode, I talk with Satish Kumar, the former monk, environmentalist, and legendary peace activist. Satish has celebrated worldwide for the remarkable two-year pilgrimage he walked from India all the way to the USA in the early 60s without spending any money and eating only vegetarian food. In this episode, we retrace the steps of this extraordinary voyage that Satish made while just in his mid-twenties, facing extreme dangers and hardships along the way to take a stand for world peace. Satish's walk is a classic example of the hero's journey, with all its trials, tribulations, inner transformation, and bringing back a powerful boon to share, his story and its assimilated lessons for peace. Enjoy the journey. Good morning, Satish. Good morning to you, Will. Very good to see you here at your home in Heartland. Thank you for um, coming. And uh, yes, a warm welcome to the Folly or Blisters uh, podcast. And um, I'm thrilled to have you as my my first guest for this series. Um, uh, your your pilgrimage walk you 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 walked from all the way from India to to Washington via um, the deserts of Pakistan and through uh, Russia and, and the sandstorms of Russia and well obviously the Afghanistan mountains before then as well onwards through 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 Europe to Paris to to London on to 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 the USA and ultimately on to Japan of course you got invited on there afterwards and it was two and a half years and it was 8000 miles and you did it without spending any money which is remarkable and managed to live uh, on a vegetarian diet all that time and uh, you faced so many obstacles on that journey and yet you returned um, having done so much work to support um, the message of peace to be spread around the world and um, succeeded in your mission. So it's, it's really an incredible hero's journey example. So it's be really wonderful to unpick it and, and explore that with you with you now. And uh, also such a great example of folly or blisters that, that the metaphor of Campbell's for his mantra for for living um, for living your your life to the full. Uh, it started with folly or bliss, um, but he updated it to folly or blisters. And metaphorically, you suffered many blisters on on, on that quest, which yeah. um, brought it was a journey of the soul. Yes. It's a sacred journey. Uh, there was an outer journey as well as an inner journey. And, uh, and when you are going on a journey of this nature, long journey, physically as well as spiritually, you go through all ups and downs, joys, pains, pleasures, welcomes, refusals, all experience come to you and you take them with equanimity. You take them as they come. And I felt that all experiences were making my inner soul and inner spirit resilient and strong. And so I took all the experiences equanimously. Yes. And I, I recall from reading your, your new book, um, The Long March to Washington, about your peace walk, um, I recall you um, mentioning this bit of wisdom that you got when you, when you went to um, a sacred battlefield in India. Uh, remind me what it was called, where, where, you, where you re-engaged with the, the Mahabhatra yeah. and uh, the conversation between Anjuna and Krishna, yeah. where uh, Lord Krishna tells Anjuna about equanimity. And you talked about how that really inspired you for the walk then. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so walking, of course, wasn't new to you. You, you. you started walking 
in a sense, as a Jane monk from the age of nine. Yeah. Um, and uh, so your 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 quest in that sense started early. Can you just give me a little bit of background to your to your life as a Jane monk? Yes. Um, uh, walking or being on a journey uh, has been almost a way of life for me because in my childhood, my mother always walked and I experienced that. My father used to have a horse, but mother would never ride. And if father said that, take the horse, and the horseman will take you away somewhere, she would say, no, I'll walk. If horse wanted to ride on us, how we will feel. So walking is the best. So walking really makes the journey <clears throat> because it takes time. Whole day you go for on a journey. Jordan, the day. And so my mother used to go to the farm and I'll go with her. And when we walk to the farm, along the way, mother will sing songs. She will tell me the stories about the trees, the honeybees, the clouds, the sunset, the lakes, everything I came, I came across was there in my mother's teaching. And then my father died when he was four, sorry, my father died when I was four years old. And uh, that was a great shock, loss of father at that time. And so I was in a way looking for something which will stop people dying. But also I was searching for a father. <laughs> and so those two things came together and inspired me to become a Jain monk because the guru, the Jain guru, Tulsi, he became my father figure. Oh. I was very attracted to him. Yeah. I felt as if he was my father. <laughs> So the moment I saw him, I felt a very strong connection with him. And also, uh, the monks said that only way to overcome death is to renounce the world and live a life of sacred monkhood. And so um, I said, I'll do anything uh, to stop people dying, so to speak. And so I became a monk at age nine. And as a monk, you live extremely basic, simple life. The Jain monks live by begging for their food. So I would go from door to door and you never take too much food from one house because you don't want to deprive the householder from their food. So you take a little here, a little there, a little there. It's a little bit like a honeybee going from flower to flower, taking a little nectar here or a little nectar there, never harming or damaging the flower. And so that way I lived walking, 
for nine years I was a monk and for that nine years no train, no car, no boat, no plane, no bicycle, no shoes, bare feet walking. And that was also a sacred journey because as a monk you are walking and you are honoring the earth and you are showing your connection with the earth and you are asking us forgiveness for walking on her back. So that humility towards the earth I was taught as a monk and living very simply and apart from once a day that I had to beg for food and eat once in 24 hours, no breakfast, no dinner, only one meal at lunchtime before 12. So, so from 9 to 18, I was in a kind of uh, situation where I was learning to uh, make an inner journey as well as outer journey. And therefore, when the inspiration came to walk for peace around the world, then walking was natural to me. Because I thought that if I go for peace by plane or by car or by train, it's not peaceful. Uh, the peaceful way of walking is the walking. Peaceful way of traveling is the walking. And therefore, uh, I have to be peace rather than just talk about peace. So by walking, you are at peace in a way. But you are also trying to find peace. You are searching for peace. So metaphorically, I was going to Moscow, Paris, London, Washington to talk about peace. But I also, as my monk's training, knew that peace is in our heart. Mm. Peace is in everybody's heart. Peace is not in the Kremlin or in the White House. It's only a symbolic, it's a metaphorical uh, gesture that I'm making by going to the Kremlin and the White House to talk yeah. about peace. But peace is in my heart. And so when I'm walking, I am re realizing that peace, but also finding that peace in everybody's heart. So when I'm walking, I can meet everybody. If I am going by plane or train or car or any other means, then I am not really meeting so many people. I'm only thinking about the Kremlin or the White House. So finding peace in everybody's heart and realizing that peace is in our heart, that was the kind of purpose. So I started and how to make that walking, walking is difficult enough, but how to make that walking even more difficult and, uh, and with my guru, with my mentor, with my teacher, Vinoba Bhave, who was a great Gandhian philosopher and scholar and activist, an embodiment of peace. He was a very wonderful guru, wonderful teacher, wonderful mentor. And so he said, 
Do not think of making your journey easier. More difficult journey you have, greater experience and greater awareness and greater understanding you will have and you will find peace within your heart. So embracing difficulties, embracing hardships is part of your journey, sacred journey. So how to make that walking and walking through mountains and deserts and snow and, and all that will be difficult enough. But how to make that even more difficult is by being vegetarian. So I give you to protect you from any indulgence and any kind of bewilderment and, and really protect your soul, your spirit that you remain completely vegetarian. Because when you are walking through Pakistan, Afghanistan, Russia, Europe, in the 60s, being vegetarian was not so popular, not so well-known. I know it's remarkable that you managed to do that for so long. Um, and I, I loved how you described actually how Vinoba as your mentor, and also the mentor figure is really... Um, a really um, important or, or colourful part of the hero's journey. He often appears before the threshold, before the threshold crossing to begin the journey. In your case, you went to see your guru. He had his blessing before you crossed the threshold. And uh, I love how he he told you he had two weapons for you. Yeah. Just as, just as, as, as uh, Athena gave Perseus a, 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 a shield yeah. to defeat the Medusa, the Gorgon, and uh, King Arthur was given a sword yeah. by Merlin. Yeah. Uh, Vinoba gave you a shield and a sword, and, yeah. and they, they represented those two aspects you just mentioned: the uh, well, the, the vegetarianism, yeah. and also the the walking without money. Exactly. Yeah. So, shield and a sword is a very good metaphor. That was Vinoba's uh, um, idea: that um, by not having uh, any money, you will be really dependent on people, and you will have to trust people. You have to trust yourself and you have to trust people. And when you trust, you are protected. When you doubt, you are vulnerable. So your vulnerability will be uh, your strength in a way, but your vulnerability will be balanced by trusting. So even if something happens and you don't get food, you don't get shelter, you don't get any uh, help and support, still you are able to move forward. So, and also when you are meeting people and they say, <clears throat> they're all right, you are going for peace, come and we will look after you. And they give you food and you say you are vegetarian, that will make people think, why are you vegetarian? Yes. So making peace with the animal kingdom yeah. is as important as making peace with the human world. So that way, kind of two weapons mm. to protect and to equip me and resilience, yeah. uh, make me resilient. <clears throat> so Vinoba's teachings and Vinoba's sword and shield, these two weapons to remain vegetarian and go without any money, whatever the situation, 
those two, I'm so grateful and yeah. delighted yes. uh, that I took those two weapons and they did protect. They yes. did act like shield and sword. Yes. And I was able to go through two and a half years without touching a penny, without touching any money remarkable. and yeah. ever eating meat. Especially that you managed to do it with just vegetarian food when it wasn't even <laughs> widely available. Yeah. Um, and that, but there obviously were some challenges with that along the way, um, which we'll no yeah. doubt come to at some point. But um, just to rewind the clock a little bit um, before you went to your guru, just to get a sense of how this, in the hero's journey, that sort of starts with the call to adventure. Yeah. Um, and um, so I, th I believe you were in a cafe with Menon and yeah. uh, you were having this discussion about Bertrand Russell and yeah. him being imprisoned for um, peacefully protesting a, for peace. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that, that conversation went and how this sort of call to adventure came? Yes, yes. <clears throat> um, my friend Menon and I were in Bangalore and we needed to talk about something. So we said, let's go have coffee in a coffee house and, and talk about things. So we went and we started to talk and, and we uh, ordered coffee. But in the meantime, uh, the newspaper was uh, on the coffee table and I picked it up and I first thing I saw there was that there was another hero, um, a 90-year-old philosopher, Bertrand Russell, was going to jail because he was refusing to pay a fine and he was refusing to move away from the demonstration and protest against nuclear weapons. And so uh, he was put in jail. So he's a Nobel Prize winning Lord Bertrand Russell going to jail for peace in the world. That was a kind of heroic act uh, uh, of peace that uh, attracted my uh, attention. And, and whatever we had to talk, Menon and I, we kind of postponed it. And I said, Menon, look at this news. What is happening? And... Uh, and Menon and I talked about peace and we talked about disarmament and we also talked about the state of the world and our role in it. And so, uh, inspired by that act of uh, love, in a way, kind of act of peace, uh, going to jail for peace in the world, we were so inspired that if a 90-year-old man can do that, we young men should be able to do something similar and our act will be to go to Moscow, go to Paris, go to London, go to Washington and, and join the international peace movement. Uh, and, and that is a kind of, you can say, a world without weapons, a world without wars, a kind of Shangri-La, a kind of utopia a kind of heaven on earth that we can see. When you can have a world without weapons and wars and conflicts, that world of harmony, that would be the kind of um, goal that we want to achieve in the, our life. And even if we don't achieve it, at least we want to work for it. And in the end, if we achieve it in our heart, then we are at peace within ourselves. So it's a kind of very big picture. and so. Uh, 
then and there we decided that we will do it. And how we do it? And we said walking is the best way. And so having that, taken that decision, we felt something very inspired and very energized. Brilliant. And um, what I love about that sort of call to venture, if you like, is that in, admittedly, in a sense, you've been on a, on a path of peace uh, since the age of nine um, as a Jain monk, but also working in the Gandhian movement um, up to this point when you had this coffee with Menon. But I love um, how this call uh, for peace at this time, this big walk, became, uh, as Michael Mapulgo says in the endorsement for your book very beautifully, how this became your life's work. It wasn't just this walk, it became a long life's walk for peace. Yeah. Uh, and for sort of justice and and a fair world and a greener world. Um, and it all started um, one sense at nine, but at this moment, particularly very poignant going for this big walk, mm. this call was, was your life's work. Um, so can you just tell me a little bit about, about Menon? I never know much about Menon, this character who did this walk with you. Yes, uh, he was from Kerala. Yeah. And he and I more or less joined the Gandhian movement of Vinoba Bhave uh, together. He okay. came from the south and I came from the north. I came from Rajasthan. Uh, and yet he and I became very good colleagues and very good fellow travelers and very good friends. And, uh, and he um, uh, was very kind of uh, dignified and very um, kind of... Um, very, a man of integrity and man of wisdom, uh, even though he was young, like I was young, but I always felt very comfortable with him. So our friendship was very deep and very uh, unconditional love and unconditional friendship. So um, I could trust that if I was with him and he was with me, we will get along very well together. And in India, we say the journey together with two people is always better. Yeah. Um, meditate alone, mm. travel together, yeah. and sing with three. That's the kind of uh, saying. Dhyanam uh, ekaki, gamanam vibhi, gainam tribhi. Meditation alone, walking two together, or traveling together, and singing three together. So men and I were very good friends, and, and therefore I could trust myself, and I could trust men and and we thought that this will be a kind of journey of the soul together because he was my soul mate, was my soul brother. And, and we were very close together. I have interest. Are you, did you remain in touch with him over the years since you left? India? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. I'm in touch with him via emails. Yeah. And when I go to India, I see him. Oh, you do? Great. Yeah, I see him. And, and we are good friends and we have some common friends. So we yeah. stay in touch with each other. And he's still in Bangalore and he's in good health and he's uh, active. What did, he, what did he um, do with his, with his career path? He became a teacher yeah. and he's an activist, Gandhian activist yeah. still. Uh, but he also became a teacher and, uh, and he was teaching in a college. So he and I, in a way, kind of similar path we have followed. He remained activist. I remained activist. He teaches at Shuma, at one of the colleges, yeah. um, a Quaker college, yeah. and I uh, teach and, and started Schumacher College. So we have something very similar. Yes. 
Okay, that's interesting to, to hear a sort of little bit of background on him. Yeah. Um, and the call to adventure in the hero's journey is often followed by a refusal of the call. Yeah. I.e., often it can reflect sort of maybe some fear or some some doubt about taking the journey. But in your case, you, you mentioned a couple of big obstacles that come up that made you question, oh, "God, should I really do this journey?" Can you tell me a little bit about about those? And the first um, obstacle was that I had recently married, and and my wife was pregnant. So I said to Menon that this will be impossible to leave my young wife behind, even though I have this great calling and great inspiration and, uh, and I want to go on this long journey, uh, but uh, there's a big obstacle. And so um, Menon also knew my wife uh, because we were all very good friends. And so he wrote to her saying that your husband and I have a great idea but we want your blessing. And when she received that letter, she was very upset, very angry, very annoyed, um, because how can you leave me in this pregnant state and, and go on these great ideas, but uh, very contradictory to a, a proper human life. And so that was the big uh, obstacle. And so um, when Lata wrote back to Menon, I almost thought that it's not going to happen. Yeah. Because I can't leave my young wife in pregnant state and, uh, and go on this journey. So uh, in any way, my wife at that time was with her parents. So I went to see her and, and, and to reassure her that uh, I cannot go without your blessing without your support. And if you are not uh, giving your blessing, then I can't go and he won't go. Uh, but somehow during that time, she was also very idealistic, uh, my wife, Lata. She was very idealistic and she somehow thought about it. And, uh, and then also her parents were very idealistic. So they uh, also thought about it and say, if we become obstacle to such a great journey, it will remain with Satish whole of his life and regret that something he wanted to do but he could not do because of his wife and because of his um, parents-in-laws. <clears throat> so my parents-in-law said that uh, as far as your welfare is concerned, don't worry, we will look after you. You will be fine. Um, and I said that I'm not going to go, first of all, until our child is born and everything is well. Uh, and so somehow over the next six months, we worked on this idea. And to, first of all, Lata said, I'll come with you. I'll carry the baby on my back and we will go together. And she remembered the great heroic journey of Rama and Sita uh, in the epic Ramayana where Rama goes into the forest for 14 years and Sita follows him, goes with him. And so she says that we have a great epic story. If Rama <laughs> and Sita could go for 14 years in the forest, I'll come with you in the forest. This will be our journey. But anyway, her parents were totally 
against that, that would have been a very different journey altogether. Different it? journey altogether. And so slowly and gradually, the ideas changed, the mind changed, the feelings changed. There was a transformation. And Lata being herself very idealistic and very active in peace and, and Gandhian thinking and, and so on, um, which was very fortunate, uh, she came to the conclusion that she should give me her support and blessing. So after a big uh, kind of delay and and, and, a, and a, a lot of conversation. And no doubt a few sleepless nights as well. And lots of sleepless <laughs> nights and lots of arguments and lots of discussions and lots of uh, agony. In the end, uh, she gave her blessing. Great. And so it was that on the 1st of June, 1962, yourself and Menon yeah. set off from Gandhi's grave. Yeah. Yeah. In... Now, Mahatma Gandhi has a very great uh, place in my life because Mahatma Gandhi uh, inspired me in a way to leave the monastic order and, and come in the world yeah. and make the world a beautiful place and make everything in life a spiritual way of life. Uh, and that is by transforming our heart. And so it was very symbolically important for me that we begin our yeah. journey from the grave of Mahatma Gandhi, who gave his life. That was a kind of hero journey yes. in itself. Yeah. And therefore, um, from the grave of Mahatma Gandhi, we said, we'll follow the principles of Gandhi, of love, of nonviolence, of peace. And therefore, we will make the, our journey from there. And... The nature was absolutely wonderful. Uh, the, the clouds burst out, <laughs> kind of like an a, a, a early monsoon or something in June, a bit early, and yet uh, amazing. And therefore, that heat of, of the time, the moment, mm. calming, cooling with rain, was a kind of uh, symbolic metaphor from nature that the heat of uh, the war and conflict and nuclear weapons can be cooled down mm. with our effort and our offerings and our thoughts and our walking. And so um, that was a very beautiful blessing from nature, from the clouds, from um, the, the divine uh, presence. And so Gandhi, rain, people came there, lots of people came to say goodbye and we left and the other obstacle, apart from uh, Lata's obstacle that I had to leave yes, my sorry, young wife. Huh? Yes, I forgot the other one. Go on. The other obstacle was um, government of India refusing to give us passports. Yes. And so uh, they said that uh, if something happens to you and we have to bring you back from anywhere in the world, we need a deposit from you of a certain amount of money so that uh, uh, you are secured and you can be brought back. That was the rule at that time in yeah. 1962. And we said, we are going for peace. We are going without any money and we don't have any money and we don't want any money. We don't want to ask anybody for money. And therefore, um, if we are uh, able to go around the world uh, without money, which is our resolve, we want you to give us our passport any, without any money. So that became a big obstacle. So we actually left New Delhi, the grave of Mahatma Gandhi, that evening without any passport. And so the first we, of many sort of great risks. Yeah, great <laughs> risk. And 
and without passport, how can you go uh, abroad? You can't. You can't cross the borders. And so we said, but in the meantime, we are walking from New Delhi yeah. to uh, the border of Pakistan and India. Uh, it will take a one month. And so during that time, fingers crossed, something will happen. And our friends and our supporters will uh, lobby the government. And somehow at, that happened. One of our friends who knew us, and who was a, a member of parliament, MP, and, and he raised the question next day in the parliament when the prime minister of India, Mr. Nehru, present in the parliament, said, how can you um, deny passport to these two great heroes of peace who are going on this great adventure or a great journey uh, uh, without any money? And you are saying to them to give. So prime minister himself, he did not know anything about this, that we were not refused passport. It was a bureaucratic uh, civil servants holding the, the, uh, holding the passport back and uh, rules and regulations and, and bureaucratic uh, uh, customs. And so Mr. Nehru himself, he was also not only prime minister, but also foreign minister at that time. So he himself took the case and ordered the bureaucrats to uh, issue the passport. So just before, one day before we were to leave India it's and cross the border into Pakistan, the two officials from the government came to Amritsar uh, and seeked us and found us and, and delivered us passport and treated us with good dinner. <laughs> So that was the Fantastic. second obstacle. All yeah. in good time. Yeah. And uh, I love how interestingly, again, the sort of the pattern of the hero's journey, the, at the threshold crossing, there's often a, a threshold guardian or someone who sort of tries to sort of either sort of persuade you not to do it or or, or sort of questions the journey. And, and there was the, 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 the journalists there, were certainly a journalist was saying, you can't, how can you possibly walk all the way to America? That's crazy. No, it was actually a friend of mine, uh, was a, a, a woman called Kranti, who, who you would I think there was a journalist who, who, who was like, you can't walk all that way, weren't they? How could he manage to walk all that no, way? No, there was a journalist was in Delhi who was asking yeah. these questions, but in, on the border of India and Pakistan, yes. yeah. there was a friend of mine. No, I, I rewound a bit there, but yes. Called Kranti. Mm. Yes. I remember, and yeah. she was really worried. Yeah. She said, this is something you should not do. Particularly, she was worried that we should not go without any money. Yeah. And she was prepared to give us money yeah. and fund our journey. And, and food. And food. Yeah. And she said, whatever the cost, I will pay. Uh, but you take the money, I'll give you money. And take some food. In Pakistan, you are going to a Muslim country um, and, and, and a country with which we India had a war, three wars over Kashmir. And so... Uh, you walking in Pakistan, our enemy country, without any money, without any food, that's impossible. And so she brought food, packets of food uh, and, and money, everything. And so I said that that was a very uh, testing moment. <clears throat> I could have been bewildered. I could have been uh, worried. I could have been uh, sort of thought, thinking that, oh, yes, she's right. She's my dear friend. Uh, and, and, and if she's giving me money, she's giving food. Why should I worry and take money and take food? That was the moment of yeah. kind of decision. And I, and I remember you said to her. Um, yes. You said. Well, I said she, to she... her that, look, um, uh, your packets of food are not packets of food. They are packets of mistrust. 
And Vinoba, my guru, my mentor, has said, you go with lots of trust in your heart. And so I cannot take money, I cannot take food. And if I don't get food, that will be my opportunity to fast. And if I don't get shelter, that will be my opportunity to sleep under the stars. And I will call it my million star hotel. (laughs) And therefore, and if I die while walking, I'll welcome that death. What is better than dying while walking for peace? So I have no fear and I'm full, my heart is full of trust and I cannot take your food. I cannot take your money. She was in tears. I said, but Kranti, I'm going. You are not going. Why are you crying? Don't worry. All will be well. And if not, farewell. (laughs) (laughs) And so we embraced each other. But amazing things happened that on the one hand was so much fear, so much worry in the heart of my dear friend, lifelong friend, Kranti. And the moment we walk into Pakistan, scene changes completely. And there's a young man standing there without us knowing anything about it, asking us, are you the two young men who are walking for peace and coming to Pakistan? And I said, yes, but how do you know? Because we don't know anybody in Pakistan. We have written to nobody. And here you are. You know about us. And he said, yes, I heard about it. And, and your fame has traveled ahead of you. And, and even in our newspaper, there was a story about you. And so I thought that I'm for peace. And this fight between India and Pakistan is all total nonsense. We were one country before 1947, 48. Why we should be enemies now? We should live as neighbors and peacefully. That was such a like a kind of um, a kind of watering the flower. Mm. It's a kind of so listening to those words coming from a Pakistani, from a Muslim who I have never met and who has come all the way driving 16 miles from Lahore to the border looking for me and, and meeting me and my friend. That was something I was bowled over. And I said, what a great blessing. Mm. So that way we met in Pakistan. And a precedent for many similar incidents to come. Yes, um, yes. So you're essentially you're on the road now on, in the hero's journey. And it's a time of meeting lots of challenges, lots of adversaries. And you, of course, you met so many of those along the way. And we'll talk yeah. about some of them as we go along. But yeah. um, you, know, you, you had sort of treacherous mountains in Afghanistan. And you had sandstorms in Russia. And you were faced with gunpoint. and imprisonment in Paris and so many things he went through um, and um, it's also a stage of of um, building up allies and you had so many allies who came to your support so many angels on the road who came to your need and absolutely provided food and shelter and gave flyers out and walked yeah. with you and spread yeah. the message are there any you had there was so many I read about so many in the book but are there any that stand out particularly in your heart as a really memorable and uh uh, incredible. I mean, people who we you. walked through Pakistan 
And when we were going over Khyber Pass, yeah. and Khyber Pass is quite a high pass of Himalayas between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And so people were very worried because that area is a very kind of violent area, known as violent area. Mm. For us, there was no nothing, but the Pathans and so on. And so lots of people tried to stop us uh, from walking and lots of people were offering us lifts and cars and so on. But one thing I do remember very vividly is that as we're going up and up and up climbing, and it was quite a hard climb, very steep climb, um, high mountains. Uh, so a car passed by. And, and when they saw, the driver saw us, two young men walking on this very wild Khyber Pass, somehow he be became full of compassion and kindness and he stopped the car and reversed back and then asked us, do you want a lift? So hearing his voice uh, uh, in English, uh, I said, no, thank you, we are walking. So he said, but in this wild Khyber Pass, the mountains, you seem to be quite tired, you are walking very slowly. Where are you walking to? I can take you, I'm going to Kabul. So uh, when I heard his voice, an American accent, uh, accent uh, I said to him, actually, we are walking for peace and we are walking to the United States of America. And so uh, the man was puzzled, surprised, could not believe. So he came out of the car and stood in front of us and said, gentlemen, do you know where the United States of America is? <laughs> and so I said, sir, we have never been there. We have seen her on the map. We believe that she exists. And as Columbus discovered America by boat. I just think of Columbus, yeah. yeah? <laughs> I just think of Columbus, and, yeah. Yeah, Columbus discovered America by, bo uh, by boat. We want to discover America on foot. This is our resolve. He was very puzzled. So he gave me his card and said, if you ever make to America, call me up. I would like to welcome you. So that was a wonderful sort of little event. Um, and then we walked and walked and those mountains and the Kabul River, along the Kabul River, higher and higher and higher to Kabul. And, and then from Kabul, even higher, the Hindu Kush mountains, we went up to 11,000 feet high pass. Um, mm. And that was so treacherous. And as you say, blisters. Um, at that time, my feet were bleeding. And I was feeling so tired, so exhausted. Uh, you go over one great hill, high hill, you go down and then up again. And you go down and up again. It was like this all the way. And we had chosen in our kind of, you can say, uh, foolishness or in our wisdom. <laughs> we had chosen the path which was the most difficult. We could have gone through Kandhar in the south or Mazar-e-Sharif on the north, which has less mountainous. 
But this middle road, which goes from Kabul to Herat in the center of Afghanistan, is the most high and most difficult. I think there's a quote from the hero's journey. I, I, I forget if it's Campbell or somebody else, but it's used within the context of the hero's journey about going into the forest where it is darkest. So that sort of reflects that. In yeah, sense. yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. This was the most treacherous and yeah. most difficult journey. And so um, my legs were aching, my feet were full of blisters, and, and luckily my friend, E.P. Menon, he, uh, when we were leaving Kabul, our friends had given us some uh, things to, to put plasters and some uh, linoleum and so on. And so he did some healing and some uh, things. And, and so uh, <clears throat> that night, I was so much in pain and so much in kind of distress that I said, this is foolish. Why am I doing it? Am I achieving anything? Is this journey worth it? I can't make it. I can't manage it. So I said to Menon, look, Menon, I can't do it. And I want to go back. Yeah. I, you, if you want to go, carry on yourself. Or let's go back. And we'll go back to, to Kabul somehow and, and borrow some money and fly back, to, back home. I think this is this is a complete uh, foolhardy act that we are doing. This is not worth it. We are not going to achieve anything. The peace is not going to come just by our walking in these mountains and f being blistered by uh, these uh, long uh, walks. And therefore, and, and hungry, because in those mountains, hardly any villages. And, and we were staying from time to time in what is called so, uh, uh, in indigenous people, the Afghans, uh, yeah. mountain people with tents yes. and coochies. So we were staying in them uh, So and being vegetarian, just bread and cheese and water, nothing else. Um, so no food, um, completely tired, um, feet full of blisters. Um, uh, all that made me so um, exhausted and so disappointed and so depressed so that yeah. I felt to give up. So yes, it, it it very much sounds like you entered the the, the dark wood stage of the hero's journey, where yeah, you that really was face was, to face with yeah, your dark your, night your, of the soul, the, almost, yeah, you can say. I wish often the same, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and you came, therefore, face to face with the, the biggest obstacle on the journey, or the or the biggest fear. Would you say there was a fear in particular that represented that moment that you became face to face with about about maybe continuing the journey, being able to survive? What what, what would you say the fear was? No, my fear was that uh, I'm not going to make it. Yeah. First of all. Yeah. And my fear was that my legs are not going to to make yeah. it, and uh, and also um, kind of sleeping rough on the floor, sleeping bag I carried, but on the floor and in the mountains, no food. All that became so difficult. And, and so psychologically, not only physically, but psychologically, I felt uh, depressed. And I felt so down that I said, I can't. So my, it was a kind of fear that um, I cannot make it. I'm not up to it. I cannot, I'm not strong enough. I'm not capable. This is not going to, to and one day, okay, two days, okay, but day after day after day, and then we are going into the deserts, and then we are going into the snow. And so all the things came to my mind 
this, uh, the, the, the snow and Siberian um, winter in Russia. And so I'm not going to make it. And if we want to go, uh, I'll ask Kranti again and say, uh, you were right. And, and please send us money to Kabul and we'll fly to Moscow. We'll fly somewhere. So that those sort of thoughts came yeah. to my mind. Yeah. <coughs> if I could just share a, a little anecdote, because it reminding, reminded me of this, your experience with, with these blisters. Yeah. And uh, you, you may remember, because I, I approached you for an endorsement for it, but five years ago, I, I did a small walk from London yeah. to Glastonbury. It was yeah. a two-week two walk. Yeah. And we were walking, promoting a film called Road to Peace, yeah. the Dalai Lama film, yeah. documentary. And uh, we walked without money, inspired yeah. largely by yourself. And uh, I got a quote from you just to, for our website to say, you know, a nice positive thing about what we were doing. But anyway, I foolishly, I think you, you had some new shoes, didn't you, at, at that point, which maybe caused the blisters. Yeah. And I stupidly myself, uh, schoolboy era, I, I walked straight out in these new shoes from London. Yeah. And uh, got to Reading in absolute agony two or three days later. Yeah. And I couldn't walk. I had to stop for two days in Reading. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I went into a, a, a cafe um, the first day. I stayed overnight and then I was like, okay, I've got to survive today without any money on my own. Um, how do I do this? I walked into a cafe called the Global Cafe in Reading. Yeah. And uh, I asked just to, to begin with, I just spent the morning there working on my computer, um, yeah. typing up a blog. And uh, I asked for some, some water, probably to like, explain what I was doing and spreading the message of peace and could I have some water? They said, fine, that's okay. And it got by to lunchtime, and I was, thinking, I was starving, thinking, oh, my God, how do I dare ask for some food? Eventually, I cracked up courage and went up to the bar. A new guy had started a shift, and I went up to him and said, um, um, we're walking for peace, and I explained the whole mission. We had a fly a bit like you, and I showed yeah. him what, what we were doing and explained the story. And he went, oh, my God, like Satish Kumar. <laughs> so I heard his documentary, No Destination. Yeah. Of course you can have some food. And then I, sorry, I, I then said, I work with Satish. I do PR for his magazine. He said, of course you can. You must have some food. Okay. <laughs> and, he, and he gave me this wonderful plate of Ethiopian food, big oh, plate wow. and a, a massive mo mocha coffee. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, what are you saying tonight? I said, I haven't got anywhere to stay. Just come stay at my house. <laughs> so he was so inspired by hearing your story that That's he treated me like a king. <laughs> amazing, 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 amazing. Yeah. That's a wonderful story. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so anyway, we anyway, that was the dark night of the soul. Yes, and 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 actually, that was the night, and all night I was in agony, and I, Menon um, uh, tried to help me sleep, and so I slept, and he said, "Tomorrow morning you will be fine. You will have new consciousness, new day, and what I have put on your feet will be better. It will be healing." And we'll go slowly, we'll walk less, we'll walk a few miles, we don't have to go anywhere, there's no particular uh, point of arrival that we have to walk, uh, we can do what we like. So he was a very good companion and a good consoling uh, friend at that time. And so uh, next morning, I thought again, and I said, this is blessing. Blisters are blessing. Only now I know what true, true pain is. I know what suffering is. And if I can endeavor and endure this mm. suffering yeah. and stay with it, it'll be good and I'll be fine. And my feet will be strong and my heart will be strong and my consciousness will be strong and, and my feelings will be strong and I'll make it. And so we started and we started to walk slowly and at smaller distances and stopped and took rest, and and then gradually 
my blisters healed and, and we made it. Fantastic. So it's incredible that you managed to soldier on through the pain. Yeah. And so worth it. Um, so you continued on and um, you made your way into Iran. In the sense, there was a continuum of the dark wood where you had sort of various more challenges along the way. Where you had, more challenges you had, because uh, you the had, terrain of high mountains may seem treacherous, yeah. but the deserts are no less uh, difficult. And particularly the wind, the wind was so strong and so, the, the, the wind was full of dust. Uh, so the desert dust, we could hardly see uh, one or two meters ahead of us. And so in that, uh, through that uh, journey was um, amazingly difficult. And then rain, and the rain made uh, the, the earth so muddy. The, first the sand and then the mud. And so um, it was more, it became more and more difficult physically. Uh, but having gone through that uh, dark night of the soul in Afghanistan mountains, um, I learned and we slowly, slowly, we made it day after day. And also, deserts had no villages. And so we walked all day, say about 20 miles, and no village and nothing, nowhere to stay. And yes. so we slept out in the really, the million star hotel yeah, that, uh, under the stars and under the moon. Five star. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, we walked again, another 20 miles, no village. And then we found a railway crossing and, and, a, and a, a, a railway crossing little post where one person lived and stayed just to stop uh, um, and put the crossing down and up and stop people uh, crossing the railway when railway is coming, uh, trains are coming. And so that person saved us after 48 hours of hunger yeah. and 40 miles of walking. Um, and sometimes we walked in one day 30 to 40 miles a, uh, from 8 a.m. to uh, 8 p.m. A, a heck of a long time to walk without any food, isn't it? Without yeah. any food. We carried water yeah. in a water bottle. That's all. And there was nothing else. Um, okay. And so you then had the challenge of getting a visa into the Soviet Union. And um, there was then this lunch at the, the tea factory in Georgia. Yes. Which, uh, a wonderful story, which I've heard you talk about and read about it of interest again in the book recently um and this lady there who really sort of set a whole new um well sort of gave a whole new expansion and strength to your your mission that's right can, that's you, can right. you share the story i mean i would say that this uh, young lady in georgia yeah was almost as inspiring as burton russell yeah because she had this power of imagination in this little village uh, in the Caucasus Mountains by the Black Sea, uh, this little factory of tea, because Georgia produces good wine and good tea. Mm. And so um, this woman inviting us, reading our leaflet and say, how do you eat if you have no money? And when we say, people offer us food, say, are you hungry? We have a little canteen in our factory. Come and eat with us and have some tea with us. And so we go and then suddenly she had a brainwave. She says, she comes with the four packets of tea and she says that, be my messenger. I want to give you a mission. Give one packet of peace tea to our premier in the Kremlin, second packet of peace tea 
to the President of France in Palace Elysee, the third packet of tea to the Prime Minister of England in 10 Downing Street, and a fourth packet of tea uh, to the President of the United States of America in the White House. And please give them a message from me. My message to them is that if you ever get a mad thought of pressing the nuclear button, please stop for a moment and have a fresh cup of peace tea. This is no ordinary tea, peace tea. And that will give you a moment to think and reflect that your bombs are not going to kill your enemies, but they will kill ordinary, innocent men, women, children, farmers, workers, animals, lakes, forests, insects, everything will be destroyed. Don't use the weapon. And that was such a revealing and such inspiring and such a, a beyond my imagination yeah. that somebody could say those words in that little village. It was genius. Yeah. Genius, genius. And an ordinary looking woman had extraordinary idea yeah. Yeah, and yeah. imagination. I was so touched, so inspired. Simple, symbolic sort of message. Yeah. And that was a kind of antidote to my suffering in Afghanistan yeah. and suffering in yes. Iran. Yes. That was the antidote yes. because um, now I have a, such a kind of great uh, sort of mission yeah. I, 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 with me and my, mm. my friend. We have a mission and we have to carry these packets of peace tea from this young lady to deliver to these four nuclear capitals. It was such a kind of positive... So um, yes, and since this was uh, in, in the hero's journey, the, the treasure or the, the gold, if you like, that came out of the dot. That was, was the yeah, gold. Yes. That was the gold. The tea yeah. was the tea of yeah. peace. And that, that was a sacred tea. And yeah. uh, it was the it was the kind of metaphor for yeah. something something beyond my imagination. Yeah. And so that changed completely. And and we walked and we we managed. So that was a great uh, moment yeah fantastic moment um and then you were in russia there's a i believe there's a guy from the, the central peace committee or yeah they were trying to sort of stop you from flying through part yeah. of russia and, and do you think that was because they didn't they were afraid of you spreading your message to the, the people and they wanted to control that they were afraid yes because we were talking about non-violence we were talking about unilateral disarmament we were talking about gandhian principles of decentralized economy we were talking about spiritual values. We were talking about um, more ecological peace. And these ideas in a communist regime were not very uh, popular. And so they were, th they were sort of worried that we are brainwashing or we are sort of changing people's thinking and ordinary people. So that was one. But they pretended that it was winter, it was Siberian snow, uh, and the walking over the... Um, the uh, the mountains there, uh, Caucasus mountains, uh, will be impossible. Yeah. And therefore, uh, they. this is my fear or my feeling. Yeah. Uh, th their words were yeah. about the practical and the physical danger uh, and the obstacle of snow. But my feeling was that... Um, uh, they also did not want us to talk about yeah. uh, all this unilateral disarmament yeah. Yeah. And, and, a, and a message of love and peace uh, and, and a Gandhian values. And so uh, so they somehow managed to stop us uh, from walking between Sochi and Moscow. And so almost, you can say, we were forced to fly yeah. and arrived in Moscow. Yeah. And Moscow was under 
something like 10 feet of snow. So we, we could see their reason, uh, even though they, their motivation may be mixed, but uh, we could see their reason that they were worried that if two Indians die in Siberian snow, they will have a bad reputation for their government. Yes, And, and the, it was a peace committee and they yeah. took responsibility that if we are walking for peace in the Soviet Union, then peace committee should uh, look after us. And so, um, so there was a mixed mm. reason. But we went to Moscow. Uh, we were in Moscow. And, and amazingly, at that time, Khrushchev was trying to de-Stalinize uh, Soviet Union yeah. and make a little bit more free. And so when we were in the universities and colleges and places, young people were talking quite freely. Uh, and they were talking about uh, liberal ideas. And they were talking about people who are uh, more idealistic. And so we had a very good response from uh, Moscovites, particularly the young students. Uh, and many of them wanted to walk with us. And uh, also, um, we had a very good letter from um, Khrushchev himself saying that you are welcome to Soviet Union. I cannot see you personally because I am very busy and occupied with many foreign visitors at this moment. But the chairman of the Supreme Soviet will receive you in the Kremlin and receive your packet of peace tea. And so we went to the Kremlin and we met the chairman of the Supreme Soviet yeah. uh, in the Kremlin and, and we delivered the packet of first packet of peace tea uh, in the Kremlin. Fantastic. And we talked about this idea that um, Soviet Union should disarm unilaterally. Uh, but uh, the Supreme Soviet uh, chairman or president, he said that Russia has gone, or particularly the Soviet Union, has gone through an incredibly terrible war, Second World War, uh, in which we lost 14 million citizens, Soviet citizens, died in the Second World War. And therefore, we cannot take any risk of anything. So it's our defense measure, yeah. and we cannot do unilaterally. We have to do it when America agrees. But we are totally in agreement uh, with you that there should be no nuclear weapons. Yeah. And it was not us who started the nuclear uh, arms race. It's the America who started with the bomb on Hiroshima yeah. and Nagasaki. Yeah. So America has to take the initiative first. So this was their answer. Although we were not agreement with it, we said you have to, just because somebody is uh, having nuclear weapons, you don't have to have them. Uh, so we were, but uh, from their point of view, our argument was very naive and very idealistic. And they were trying to be realistic. And so there was a kind of conflict with the idealism and the realism. And, and I said, the realism leads to nuclear weapons. It's better to have idealism yeah. um, of, uh, of uh, Tolstoy. Yes. And so we went to see Tolstoy's place. And, and that was another pilgrimage uh, for us. Well, you had so many wonderful cultural interludes, didn't you? Yes, yes. You, you even went to see Swan Lake, of course, in Moscow. Didn't yes, you? yes, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. No, the thing is that when you are on a long journey, you meet so many amazing, unexpected experiences. Yeah. Uh, there are some negative but even though negative experiences have a positive side yeah. and some positive, but even positive experiences have a negative side. So negative and positive, yin and yang go yeah. together. Yeah. 
And so we had a wonderful hospitality, wonderful support, wonderful coverage in the newspapers, radio, television, um, and so on. And so, so there was a kind of both sides were there. So we had a wonderful time in Moscow. But again, our visas were cancelled yes. yeah. by the Soviet government. Yeah. And that is what my suspicion that they did not want us to meet ordinary people yeah. and talk about nonviolence and Gandhian values and, and unilateral disarmament. And so they did not want us to walk from Moscow to Poland. Yeah. And yet, one evening that night, without telling anybody, secretly, we left uh, Moscow. And in the dark evening, we walked out of Moscow. Nobody knew where we were. And so from Moscow until the border of um, of um, Soviet Union and Poland, yeah. uh, um, uh, border, um, <coughs> Brest, <coughs> town of Brest. For 45 days, we walked in the Soviet Union illegally. So that was another part that you could, uh, we could walk. And the, this, the people did not know anything about it and nobody knew. And and this this uh, the Soviet Peace Committee and Soviet government thought that we have left, we have gone. So they did not bother. They thought we have gone, uh, but little they knew that we had not gone. And so on the way, people looked after us, and and the Soviet people were very kind. The peasants, the farmers, the workers, the factory workers, the uh, the collective farms, all those people, they were very eager to listen to our message. But we were in the thick of the Soviet snow. Siberian snow and 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 a kind of um, twenty feet high uh, snow, amazing mm. or, or more even. And so uh, in that cold, so uh, the Afghan mountains, the Iranian deserts, and this uh, the Siberian snow. These were the kind of. But by uh, now you become a sort of hardened. Hardened. Ha hardened. Hero. My feet were stronger, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. And and my feet were stronger, uh, but. Your resilience was stronger too. Huh? Your resilience was growing. Resilience yeah. was growing. Yeah. 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 And so you, you you endured these blizzards in Siberia. You continued through Poland and East Germany. You went to Berlin and you met, I think it was the deputy prime minister there. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And on to Belgium and France. And in Paris, um, you went to look up a someone who was going to host you for the night, didn't you? And you were held up at gunpoint. Another, yes. Another sort of yes. great That's triumph. Right. That's Not right. Triumph, yeah. very great challenge. The you, thing is that... Uh, Europe is a kind of yeah. cradle of civilization. And uh, and yet, Europe has been also the cradle of so many wars. And wars come because of fear. And so fear is everywhere. And so as we were looking for our host, only address we had in Paris uh, from somebody, Madame Petit, and, and, uh, and we were looking for a host, but in that building, apartment building, uh, there was somebody who thought that we were Algerian terrorists or something. Uh, something they were there Algerian terrorists around at that time? That at why? that time, there was just yeah. the end of Algerian war. Right. And Algerian terrorism was a, a big threat at that time. Mm. And the de Gaulle was just coming to a state where to bring an end to Algerian war. Because the Algerian war was going on for a long period. And yeah. therefore, um, the Algerian terrorists were... Uh, threat and therefore we were suspected of that, and so uh, the 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 man uh, said, "Go away, go away! Otherwise, I kill you. You, you are terrorists." 
Um, so, but then some woman who spoke English uh, and French, so um, she said, who are you? What are you doing here? Uh, so we said, we are looking for Madame Petit, who is our contact here. So yes, yes, I know her. She lives in this world. And then she, she talked to this man with the gun. and said, don't, they are, they are, they are not Algerians. They are not terrorists. Um, they are friends of our <laughs> Madame Petit. It's a small mistake. Yeah. So, so, but in this great civilized society and civilized city of Paris meeting, but I was not, fortunately, I was not afraid. No. Uh, there was no fear. I thought it was some mistake or something is, um, you, you don't know, but you didn't feel I did not run away. Yeah. If I was afraid, I would have yeah. run away. I did not yeah. run away. I thought. Um, you knew it was misunderstanding that could, could be corrected. Could, yeah. could be corrected. Yeah. 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 And I kind of, I had built a kind of strong trust in my heart that uh, if I die or live, doesn't matter. I'm not going to run away from any situation. Yeah. And so from there, it was sort of out of the frying pan into the fire, wasn't it? Because you, um, you, just after that, you went to uh, the president's house to go and yes, deliver your message yes, of peace. Yes, yes, So this was the second um, place where we needed to deliver the packet of peace tea in Palace Elysee. But de Gaulle had not only refused to see us, he has refused to sign the nuclear test ban treaty. And he was in favor of independent French nuclear deterrent. And therefore, uh, he said, it's a waste of time to see these uh, peaceniks who are walking for peace and, and carrying these sort of packets of peace tea. So he refused to see us. He refused to take the peace. So we went to Palace Elysee with lots of French supporters as well and media. And so um, we were arrested there because uh, demonstrating in front of Palace Elysee is illegal. Yeah. And therefore, we were doing illegal act. So we were arrested and put in jail. And so we sp spent three days in jail in Paris. So you, not you, only were you, we were facing... Were you, were you happy to be arrested? Did you think, well, Bertrand Russell was arrested, this is making a good statement? Yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So uh, we were very happy yeah. to be arrested. We were very happy to be in jail. And I said to Menon uh, that we are following in the footsteps of Bertrand Russell. Yeah. And and uh, and if he was in jail, we are um, happy to be in jail. And as long as it takes, doesn't matter. We will be uh, prepared to stay in jail. Uh, but the chief of the police and the Indian ambassador, they came and they said that... Look, if you don't stop demonstrating in front of Palace Elysee and don't stop uh, all your activities in Paris and don't go away, we will send you and deport you back to India. Yeah. So what is what do you want to do? Do you want to go back to India or you can go back to England? Not back to England, but forward to England. England. Yeah. But we don't want you here. And so Indian ambassador said that if this will be very bad for you to go back to India, you want to carry on to uh, your journey um, uh, to London and to Washington and so on. And so we were persuaded, uh, and I think rightly, but we didn't want to go to India back. And we were persuaded to continue our journey forward. And therefore, um, uh, the head of the police said to us, that, look, President de Gaulle is not going to see you, but I am head of the police and I have access to Palace Elysee. So consider me 
as the representative of the Gaul and give me your packet of peace tea and I will deliver it to Palace Elysee to make sure that your mission is accomplished and so you don't worry. So we said, all right, it's a compromise. We have to be, we should, we should be flexible. The peace activists have to be flexible. And so we were flexible at that time and we gave it to uh, the chief of the police, uh, our packet of peace tea, and then we carried on. Yes, and um, you came to London. Yeah. And there was a big press conference. Yeah. And you got lots of publicity. Yeah. Which led to a big tour of yes, lots yes. of peace yes. organizations and yes. schools yes. and yes. universities. Yeah. And you met Howard Wilson. Yeah. No, so you wrote to Howard Wilson and he put you in contact with Pemberton Pickett. Yeah. Um, who was um, the, for the de- Department of Disarmament. Yeah. And um, how was he? Was he receptive to your calls? Yes, uh, he he was the, the from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and uh, representing the Prime Minister of, uh, of England of, of Great Britain, and he said that we are a small power, and and it's a kind of deterrent for us. So it's mainly uh, decision of nuclear disarmament has to come from Moscow and Washington. And if they join together and they agree to it, we are prepared to disarm. Yeah. Uh, but until then, uh, it is our deterrent. And, and also, kind of he implied that it gives you a kind of power at the high table, uh, table of the nuclear power. For only four nuclear powers in the world. And so it gives us a kind of uh, status. That he implied. And therefore, uh, your main mission is to persuade the Russians and the Americans. So every, uh, everyone pushing pushing the blame to the Blame others. to the others, exactly, <laughs> exactly. However, he said, I'm delighted to receive the packet of peace tea and I hope that peace, this tea is never drunk and we never use the nuclear weapons. So it will remain on the shelf, but never, hopefully never used. So he was very courteous and very kind of diplomatic and very gentle. And, and so he received the packet of peace tea on behalf of um, Prime Minister. Fantastic. Another another victory. <laughs> and then um, we met Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell, exactly. And um, and that was a great source of joy and happiness. It's like a so homecoming. Uh, There's somebody who sowed the seeds of this adventurous journey yeah. in our soul. Uh, he was still alive, 92 yeah. years old. Yes. And he received us in his little cottage in Wales. And he spent whole evening with us. And we spent whole evening with him and, and drinking tea with him and, 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 and talking about um, all sorts of things, long discussion about. The main thing which we talked about with Bertrand Russell was, particularly I mentioned this idea, that there are two ways of handling and tackling the idea of peace. One, peace as a way of life. The other, peace as an absence of war. You, Lord Russell, are more emphasizing the point of peace as an absence of war, absence of nuclear weapons and absence of other conflicts. But that absence cannot come unless we take peace as a way of life and live in peace and with peace, peace of mind and peace in our heart and peace in everybody's heart. And so a non-violent social order and a non-violent economic system and non-violent way of life 
all those things have to be addressed together and not just a single kind of issue of nuclear disarmament. Although that is very important as a symbol, but it should be seen only as a symbol and not the whole story. And so um, Bertrand Russell was sympathetic to this idea. And he said, yes, as an Indian philosopher and coming from a Gandhian background and, and all those things, uh, I understand your position and your point of view. Uh, but in order to make the movement, we have to focus on this uh, absence of war and, and nuclear disarmament. And so there was a very good discussion and a very wonderful, uh, he was a wonderful man. He was a, a real man of conviction, yeah. and a real uh, man of uh, intelligence and intellect and, and knowledge and connections. And he was in touch with uh, Prime Minister of India, Prime Minister of China, um, uh, this, uh, this, uh, the, the, uh, this uh, Secretary General of uh, the Communist Party in Russia, uh, White House. I mean, he was uh, a kind of one-man uh, institution yeah. uh, uh, holding the reins uh, of peace and disarmament yeah. and, and, and a kind of inspiring everybody that, look, wait before you use any weapons. Talk. Yeah. So that was so inspiring yeah, and awesome. so uplifting. And of course, he then um, sort of ushered you on your way and paved your tickets to yes, yes. head to America on a boat. Yes, he and his, uh, his secretary said, but how are you going to cross uh, the Atlantic? You cannot walk on water. Um, so can we give you some money? And I said, we have not touched money for two years. So we cannot touch any money. But if you can help us with two tickets, we'll be very happy and grateful and delighted. And so he and his secretary and other peace movement people together raised the money enough to buy two tickets in the Queen Mary. So we sailed across the Atlantic from Southampton to New York in Queen Mary, which took one week to sail. And we, the boat was so big and so luxurious uh, and so comfortable so we were walking up and down the decks of the Queen Mary boat. Uh, and so we're keeping up with keeping, our walking fit. practice. Yeah. And, and it was very nice to meet so many people on the boat as well. So you got to New York and you went to the UN. Yeah. And, um, and then you ultimately walked down to Washington. And yeah. of course, John Patworth, who uh, went on to... Yeah. Uh, well, you met him in Paris, didn't you? Yeah. And then he became a great friend. And of course, yeah. you then uh, ended up walking taking, over, with us. taking over his... His position at Resurgence as the editor uh, yeah. in, in, a few years down the line. But he walked with you to, to yeah. Washington for that last leg. Yeah. And uh, you received at the White House. Well, actually, the walk ended, of course, at Kennedy's grave. How did it yeah. feel? Because he just yeah, been assassinated. Well, because we had thought that Kennedy was talking a lot about peace. Yeah. And he had some very good ideas. So he, we will meet him in the White House. And we will say to him that if there is any hope for a, a complete disarmament of nuclear weapons, you are the one who can lead the way. Because America is so powerful and, and America has never really suffered from such atrocities as Russia has, the Soviet Union has, and therefore you can lead the way. But when we heard that he is assassinated, we felt that our end goal of that particular journey has to be the grave of John F. Kennedy. Yeah. So we started from the grave of Mahatma Gandhi and we ended at the grave of John F. Kennedy. So our sacred journey for peace started from a grave and ended at another grave to show that 
these two men of peace were assassinated. And therefore, we have to shift our focus and our trust from the gun and violence because gun does not discriminate between this and the other, good and bad. Mm. And so a gun can also kill a Gandhi. A gun can also kill um, a Kennedy. And, and a gun is the beginning of the nuclear weapons. So they're all connected. And therefore, if we want peace in the world, uh, then and we want people like Gandhi and Kennedy to survive and live, then we have to uh, shift our um, trust and faith yeah. from the gun to peace and nonviolence yeah. and, and negotiation. So that was a symbolic act of ending the journey at the grave of John F. Kennedy. Yeah. And then you went on to meet, to meet uh, another great hero, Martin Luther King. That was a kind of, you can say, a, a kind of like a... Um, Icing on the cake? Huh? Icing on the cake, <laughs> or, or you can say uh, reaching a kind of real destination. Yeah. Because Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi, these are the two great heroes of our time who have embodied what we were talking about. They yeah. were the embodiment of peace, yeah. love, nonviolence, compassion, kindness, generosity, all the great qualities that I admire yeah. and I aspire. Yes. Um, these were the two. And therefore, I had heard him give this great speech of I have a dream. Yeah. And so, uh, so I said to uh, Martin Luther King in my letter that we have a dream and our dream is very small. And that dream is to see you and meet you and offer our um, homage to you. And so he very generously and very kindly uh, offered us to meet and invited us to meet to Atlanta, uh, invited us to Atlanta and meet him. And so we met and uh, and he was another, like Bertrand Russell, great man. And, and when you are sitting in his presence, you can feel the aura, you can feel the spirit. You can feel that this person is not just a physical body. This person is something different, something mm -hmm. very special, something yeah. a, a kind of uh, a kind of light yeah. uh, in himself. Yeah. And and every word he was saying was touching our heart. Uh, and he was very interested to learn more about our story and every detail of our story uh, of journey. And so that was a kind of tremendous. Uh, moment of satisfaction and joy and upliftment. Yeah, he said to you as well, didn't he, that um, that uh, to be non-violent, we have to be non-violent in our thoughts and our words and our actions. Yeah, exactly. It has to be embodied. Exactly. Um, how so you... this was in a way kind of great difference between uh, how Burton Russell was uh, responding yeah. to my uh, question and how Martin Luther King was responding. Martin Luther King was saying exactly what I was saying to Bertrand Russell, that nonviolence is not only a technique to protest, not only a technique to demonstrate and remain nonviolent, it has to be a way of life. And we have to embody nonviolence in everyday life yeah. so that nonviolence and compassion and kindness is, is like a radiator, yeah. radiates heat. Yes. Um, nonviolence should come from our whole being and and that not only his words but his presence i felt that yes that he was a, a being non-violent person yeah, yeah. great in yeah. his being 
And <coughs> you then went for a coffee um, while you were in Georgia. Yes. Where you had a, another horrible experience of being probably more horrifying than yes. the last one. Yeah, what a contrast. Of being held Here is a man of peace, an embodiment yeah. of peace, Marshall King. And soon after meeting him, John Papworth and I yes. go to uh, a cafe because he wanted to have some drink and talk with me because he had just been to Cuba and so on. Yes. And so when we went to this cafe, we innocent people, first time there in Albany, Georgia, not knowing anything, we went to a cafe which was whites only. And at that time in the 60s... Was it officially whites only or that wasn't, that wasn't apparent? It was not apparent, yeah. but it was yeah. whites yeah. only. And, uh, and at that time in southern states of America, especially Georgia and some other states, blacks and whites could not go in the same school, in the same cafe. Still, discrimination was very strong yeah. in the southern states. And therefore, the, uh, the uh, restaurant people said that we cannot serve you. The waitress said, we cannot serve you. I said, why? Oh, no explanation. So I went to the manager and said, my friend is going to pay and, and we can pay you in advance. Why not serve us a cup of tea and something? Said, no talking, just get out, the manager said. I said, no, we are not going to get out. I suspected that this must be, having met Martin Luther King and having participated in the civil rights movement a little bit, yeah. I knew that this was something. So I wanted to make a little point yeah. and I wanted to know. Yeah. So I said, we cannot go, leave until you explain to us what is the reason why you will not serve us tea. So he became so angry that somebody, black person, a non-white person, yeah. arguing with him yeah. and standing up um, for something. So he pulled his draw and took the gun out and pointing at my chest said, get out or I'll kill you. And that was a real moment. I yeah. could have been killed. Yeah. And, but I did, at that moment, I did not fear. I said, look, I'm not going, I'm not afraid of being killed. I want you to be ex explained to me. I, as I was saying this, the wait waiters and the waitresses and the, some customers in the, they, they all came and between me and the and the uh, manager with a gun, and and we pushed and pushed and pushed me out of the restaurant. So I was thrown out of the restaurant at a gunpoint. And so uh, once I was out, there was no way of getting back. And John Platford said, "Looks at this. Uh, let's leave it. Uh, this is you can't do anything. They are not going to change. They are not going to to listen to you." So we left there. So that was a kind of um, horrific experience of actually being discriminated just because of the color of my skin. I experienced that at gunpoint. Have you ever experienced much of that sort of behavior since then? Not really, not of that scale of that quality. Yeah. I mean, in, in England, I have been now here uh, and and, I have never experienced anything of that nature. Yeah. Minor something, but nothing really. That was the most yeah. horrific experience of my life. Was it? As a color discrimination. Yeah.
And obviously about 60 years on from that time, we have just had Black Lives Matter and the protests yeah. there. Um, and how people you, are you, still being killed. Do you killed. feel that that's really going to shift things? Yeah. Yeah. I think change is happening, but maybe a bit too slow. And when people are not prepared to accept the change and deny, Martin Luther King used to say that justice denied is justice delayed is justice denied. I repeat it. Martin Luther King used to say that justice delayed is justice denied. And so this delaying tactics of American government or any other government, that change will come slowly, slowly, but don't rush it. That's not right. We have to act fast because people are being discriminated. They are stopped um, here and there um, just because they are black. And so that is a big issue of our time. Yeah. And so after meeting Martin Luther King, we were just invited by many people in America to speak about our experience and so on. Uh, and, and as we were thinking of how we, what we do, how we return uh, back to India, we received this wonderful invitation. Can I, can I just um, just quickly interrupt there? Uh, when you did your lecture tour around the 100 universities and yeah. so forth, um, you noticed or observed how rich America was, but also how unhappy the people seemed. Yes. Uh, yes. Paradoxically, can you yeah. just uh, say a little bit about why? But you the think thing that is that America, at that time, and I think continuing, people, kind of contemporary culture of that time, had a kind of confusion of means and ends, and a production and consumption of material goods and services had become the end goal. And everybody was pursuing this economic growth and, and, and people and nature became the means, instruments of making more production, more consumption and economic growth. And that was not making everybody happy. So even though America was the richest country, the vast country, so much resources, if you put the entire world population in the United States, it still not it it will still not be more densely populated than Britain. Such a big country, so many resources, and yet people are frantic, yeah. morning to evening, on like a conveyor belt. So that lack of happiness, that lack of well-being, the lack of contentment, worried me. Because why complete, America should, people in America should be very happy. Of, the complete antithesis of your early childhood walking yeah. uh, with all this time and in nature. Yeah, yeah. exactly. People had no time. Yeah. People had no time. And so I was saying, I, even at that time, I was saying to people in America that this confusion of means and ends, you have to change. And, and the production and consumption of material goods and services should be the means for the well-being and joy and happiness of people yeah. and, and well-being of the planet Earth. And so making people 
and nature as a resource for the economy and production and consumption, that's the kind of confusion. And that was, in a way, I think, the cause of discontentment and yeah. unhappiness. Yeah. So strong. Otherwise, if one country in the world can be happy, should be America. Because there's so much resources, so much wealth, so much science, so much technology, um, so much free land that they have taken over from the indigenous people and occupied. Now they should be contented, but they are still pursuing the happiness. This life, liberty and pursuit of happiness. I always said to them, why are you still pursuing the happiness? Yeah. Just be happy. You have everything you need. Now, only thing you need is contentment and a spirituality. I think I seem to remember recording the Dalai Lama in one of his books also saying the same thing, that having travelled around the world, he always found it was the Western countries who seemed unhappier despite the fact that they yeah. supposedly had everything that should make them happy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, you, you then went on to, to, to be invited to Japan. Yes. So we received this wonderful invitation from Japan to say that Hiroshima was the first victim of nuclear weapon. And if you are making this journey for peace, it cannot be complete without making a pilgrimage to Hiroshima. And so please come to Japan. We invite you and we will walk with you and, and, and we will uh, look after you. And so um, that was a wonderful invitation. And we thought that uh, why not go back to India that way over the Pacific so we'll go yeah. around the world. And so we accepted uh, the invitation from Japan and we arrived in Japan, in Tokyo, and we walked on this pilgrimage for peace to Hiroshima. 45 days of walking from Tokyo to Hiroshima. And that journey was a wonderful journey. Another great journey because mm -hmm. Japan, having experienced war, defeat and Holocaust of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, people were totally committed to peace. They have a constitution that Japan will never have an army, aggressive army. It will be a peace constitution. And so people were ready for our message much more than anywhere else. Yeah. And people were more happy in Japan, even though they had suffered so much. They were more contented at that time. And, and the culture and the values of Zen and the Buddhist and, and so on. So arts and crafts and culture and food and, and people's ideas and poetry, we were very touched and inspired. So we were very glad that we came to Japan and our last country of walking was Japan, which was very different from uh, the, uh, America and, and the rest of the world. And so uh, that arriving after 45 days of walking, arriving in Hiroshima and meeting those victims of nuclear weapons, yeah. uh, atom bomb, yeah. um, uh, and still in the hospitals, God. suffering. That was such a kind of uh, touching yeah. and very moving moment. And, and so we were filled with compassion yeah. and, and, and a true experience of seeing people who have suffered from the bomb. Mm. The real reality of it. Real reality. Yeah. Wow. 
And so what a journey. You probably hadn't even left India before and then you went through all these experiences in yeah. two and a half years. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and you returned home and the, and, and the hero's journey always, re- the return stage is about returning with something to share for the community back home. And of course, you came back with the story that you yeah. have about your journey and yeah. um, and about what you learned about peace along the way. And yeah. what, what would you say is the most important thing you learned about peace from that experience? Most important piece uh, is peace of mind, peace within. We have to be at peace within ourselves. And then also making peace with the earth. What I learned, I was walking on earth and the way humanity is treating the earth is like being war with nature. And the way animals are farmed in factory farms, the way rainforests are cut down, the way people are thinking as if they have to conquer nature. So it's a kind of the language we use to conquer nature, to control nature, to subjugate nature, steal the secrets of nature, this kind of language. So we have a kind of war mentality against nature. And therefore, what I learned during these two and a half years of journey is that peace is a multidimensional, the spiritual dimension of peace within our heart, an ecological dimension of peace with nature, and a social dimension of peace in the world, of peace with people, and also peace among religions. Because in the name of religion, also there are lots of conflicts. And so uh, what we need to do in order to have peace in the world is to celebrate diversity and not see diversity as division. Yeah. America, Russia, China, India, Japan, Australia, diversity of nationalities. We should celebrate Hindus, Muslims, Christians. If I had gone as an Indian, I will meet a Pakistani or a Russian or an American. But if I go as a human being, I meet human beings everywhere. If I go as a Hindu, I meet um, a Christian or a Buddhist or a Jew or a Muslim. But if I go as a human being, I meet human beings everywhere. So having Christians and Buddhists and Muslims and Jews and so on is a diversity of religions. So we should embrace the diversity of religions, diversity of languages, diversity of cultures, diversity of truths, diversity of nationalities, and celebrate. That's the way to peace. Celebration of diversity is peace. And turning diversity into divisions and conflicts is the way to war. And so this is the lesson I learned. Yeah, so interestingly, um, in terms of returning with what you had to share and with the community back home, you obviously did that in India, but you did it, you've been doing it all, around, all the way around the world since. Yeah. But um, especially through the voice um piece in the sense of Resurgence magazine, which yeah. a couple of years later you took over the, yeah. the mantle of that magazine. You, be, you edited it for the, the following 50 years and uh, celebrated, um, yeah. what was it, about three years ago now yeah. in Oxford with, yeah. with an event called One Earth, One Humanity, One Future, Yes, right. which beautifully encapsulates this, yeah. this message that you've just shared. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So that's wonderful. And I have one more question for you, Satish. Maybe a couple more, actually. Um, one is, um, people say that looking back at, or people, people look back on their lives, they regret uh, at, the end, at the end of their lives, not, not the things that they, that they did do, but things they didn't do. Is there anything in your life, your, your rich life, where you've taken all sorts of risks? Is there anything you haven't done that you wish you had done? No, I have no regrets. Yeah. Uh, the thing is that um, life is a journey. And life is a miracle. And everything which has come into my life, I have welcomed it as miracle and as a journey. And in journey, there's no expectation. So I had no expectation of any kind ever. And therefore, no disappointment. Because if you expect something yeah. and then things don't work out as you expected, then you are disappointed. And you have a regret. Mm. But I did not expect anything. I made a journey. And, and that particular journey was a metaphor for the journey of life. So life is journey. And everything what's happened in my life has been a miracle. And life itself is a miracle. And all the ac actions mm. and all the events yeah. which have taken place have been miracle. Yeah. And so um, I celebrate I don't regret. Fantastic. Uh, my last question is, um, in the, our current sort of difficult and precarious time of the pandemic, the coronavirus, and you know, impending sort of environmental meltdown and the latest sort of protest about Lives Matter, everything that's going on in the world, it could be said that we're in a, in a, in a sense, collectively, we're, we're, in a, we're in a dark wood on a hero's journey. Um, if we're to be followed by a treasure that comes out of, a gift that can come out of this dark wood, what would you hope that that would be for humanity? I think um, this pandemic is a kind of wake-up call. Yeah. And this pandemic is telling us that we have to re-evaluate our relationship with nature and with people. And the way we have been treating the Mother Earth, we have been treating like naughty children, thinking that Mother Earth can give you everything. You, you, you don't need to stop anywhere. Just take, take, take without giving anything back. And so the Mother Earth is showing its power. And therefore, uh, I think now people are realizing that we cannot go back to what was the old normal. We have to rethink our relationship with natural world and our relationship with human world and the way we live. So there are lots and lots of people are thinking about it. What will be the actual outcome and how our economics and our politics and our industry and our commerce will change and what will be the new paradigm is still a mystery. Yeah. And we don't know the clear picture. But there's something I feel in the consciousness around the world. Because the one pandemic never has happened like this before that has swept the whole world. China, India, Russia, America, Australia, Europe, everywhere. There's no one country. Every country is swept. So this is a kind of big wake-up call from the earth. And it's a cry from the earth that, look, you have to change your way. Yeah. So 
one can be optimistic one can be hopeful and i feel there is a change in the in the consciousness yes. change in the air yeah. and 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 we need to reevaluate our way of life and there is a there's no lack of anything mother earth is very generous and very abundant you plant one seed in the ground you get thousand apples year after year after year so nature is abundant and nature will keep giving us and look after us but we in return need to look after nature and we we should not think that nature um is to be exploited and nature to be conquered but we have to think that we have to live in harmony with nature so if we can have that attitude change of attitude change of consciousness then we can live very well and very happily uh, and comfortably uh, and 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 uh, and uh, joyfully yeah. so that is my hope and that is my uh, b- uh, belief satish thank you very much indeed for your time and for your wonderful um and hugely inspiring story and the wisdom you shared with us so thank you so much it has been my pleasure i hope you've enjoyed hearing about satish's journey the good news is that almost 60 years later he's finally written a full account of this incredible odyssey now available in his new book pilgrimage for peace the long march from india to washington published on the 27th of may the book will be available in most bookshops and on the resurgence website resurgence.org And if you'd like to find out more about the courses Satish teaches at Schumacher College in South Devon, visit schumachercollege.org.uk. Thank you for listening to Folio Blisters. If you've enjoyed this episode, please stay tuned for more lively and inspiring conversations released bi-weekly on Wednesdays on Apple Podcasts/iTunes, Spotify, and other channels. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts where any reviews would be hugely appreciated. You can also find out more about this podcast on consciousfrontiers.com where you can sign up to receive news and updates. Big thanks go to Ike Morland for editing and recording this podcast, to Michael Tyack for the music, and to GFM Radio here in Glastonbury for lending me their studio. Finally, if you have friends who you think would enjoy or benefit from this podcast, please do spread the word. Thanks a million.